we were going to write a grant and it was going to take 10 years. Then we're going to do some theoretical modeling. We're like, with a million dollars, could you just put this in a farmer's field starting tomorrow and gather some data and see how that turns out in a couple of years? And if so, then we can just do it all over the world. And, um, and they're like, well, yeah. And we're like, okay, well, that's kind of the Google Silicon Valley way. Let's just like stop talking about it and get to work, right? Hey, everybody, this is Michael Red, and welcome to the Betting on Yourself podcast, where I interview successful entrepreneurs, athletes, and other top performers who rose to the top, took success into their own hands, and bet on themselves. Welcome to season two of Betting on Yourself. I couldn't think of a better way to kick off this season than with this amazing interview I did a couple years ago with venture investor and entrepreneur Chris Saka. Chris is the chairman of Lowercase Capital, and together with his wife, Crystal, they've invested in over 70 early stage companies that include heavy hitters like Twitter, Uber, Instagram, Twilio, Stripe, and Kickstarter, making Lowercase Capital one of the most successful funds ever. You might have seen Chris for a couple of seasons on Shark Tank making deals, but now he has other plans. In 2017, he stepped back from investing to focus on other efforts like rescuing democracy, healing the planet, promoting diversity within venture capital and technology, reforming our criminal justice system and other nonprofits. We had a chance to talk about his road to success and the times in his journey when he had to put it all on the line and bet on himself to eventually become one of the most successful venture investors ever. Here's my conversation with Chris. Chris, thank you for coming. Yeah, right on. It's good to be here. Yeah, we're just going to pick it up, man. Um, we were talking about work ethic, study habits, um, transitioning from one space to another space, which has not been the easiest thing for me, but it's rewarding because I'm seeing people's lives changed. Um, talk a little bit about that, and then we'll go backtrack to your childhood well, a little I think, bit. I mean, look, I think we're all still novices at the investing world. Mm -hmm. I think the minute you start taking it for granted is the minute you fall on your face. The minute I think you start believing your own BS a little bit is when it all falls apart. You know, we, um, I think one of the reasons why we were so successful in, in this game, and I've mm -hmm. since left the investing game, was that I tried to look at every single deal with a brand new lens without having any preconceived notions. So mm -hmm. we never had an idea like, hey, people sharing their stuff in marketplaces with other people is going to be a big deal. Mm -hmm. And that's how we found Uber. Instead, we were just working on disruptive ideas with our good buddies at the time. And the idea for Uber came up. And we're like, oh, man, that could be transformational, right? I mean, no one was looking for 140-character microblogs when Twitter happened, right? No one was looking for photo filters when Instagram came around. And I could go down the whole damn list of those things. And so, so I think you have to be able to have the attitude that every single one of these is going to be a brand new opportunity to learn. and and come at them with that, that lens of a novice. Now, as you do this sure. more and more, you develop this experience. Sometimes that experience is, how do I am, am I more helpful to this company? All right, I've seen a CEO in this type of transition before. Mm -hmm. I've seen an offer come in like this. Or I know that this kind of culture is moving in the wrong way. i got to steer it another way. But a lot of what you're learning is just how to handle your own psychology. It's just like, I know I'm getting giddy about this, but it's getting in the way of my rational thought. You know, or my rational thought is getting in the way of my gut feeling. My gut yeah. feeling is telling me this deal is going to be big, right? And so, so I think to, your, to that initial point, 
you got to come at this as a beginner. If you don't, you're going to fall down. And I think that's one of the challenges I started to feel later in my career was that I'd also lost that excitement for each new deal. Wow. Right? You, you have to come in this with yeah. optimism mm-hmm. and skepticism in balance, right? After you've seen literally thousands and thousands and thousands of pitches, <laughs> the eyes start to glaze over and I, I, I start to lose sense of my optimism. I had seen so many things fail, so many pretenders as CEOs, so many bad ideas not pan out, so many teams break apart that I started to lose that optimism, that fresh mind you have to have with every single deal. Wow. Well, I'm going to backtrack a little bit to your childhood. And as a caveat, I want to say this. Um, I didn't know, and you didn't know, that Chris Saka now is a sneakerhead. Um, <laughs> that's the one thing that we both have in common now, is that we both love sneakers. Yeah, these are the so. new Nikes. You haven't seen these? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's your swag. Yeah. I love it. I love um, it. No, it, yeah, a buddy of mine, Adam Bain, is on the board of GOAT got me the app and it's just they've made it too easy Just push a button i was in japan recently saw some <laughs> hot kicks just goaded them and now i just came home i was gone for three months just came back to my house and there's a stack of new joints so it feels um, good it is it's fun welcome yeah welcome thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um as as a, as a child what was chris saka's biggest dream and does it look like or did it look like what it looks like now yeah so I, I was good at a bunch of things. I was actually, yeah. the first thing I was was a writer. As a kid, I was winning national story writing contests and stuff like that. I loved that. Wow. I was wow. also um, a young scientist. I wanted to be a, an archaeologist like Indiana Jones. I wore the hat to school. Um, <laughs> they wouldn't let me bring the whip <laughs> to school. But I, um, and, then, and then I got, they, they found out I was really good at math. So I started mm-hmm. going to the University of Buffalo for math and like, the end of sixth grade. Um, so after regular school, I would get in a car and I'd go to the university and do a math degree. Um, wow. But around 11, I tapped out. I was kind of burned out on that a little bit. And it was one of these first experiences I had with, well, I'm really good at something, but is that really what I want to be doing? And okay. so I have this exceptional talent. And it's easy. And my parents are very chill about it. But a lot of other people in my academic world are like, you've got to pursue this. You've got to do this. Mm-hmm. So it was one of those first minute moments where I had to make a decision like, is this really what I want to be doing? Um, you know, back then, I did have a lot of hustle. I was mm-hmm. the guy who, um, at five or six, I was picking up walnuts in my front yard. I grew up near Buffalo, New York, mm-hmm. kind of similar to Ohio, same kind of climate. Walnuts, when they come down, have that green skin on them. So I'd poke holes in them. They're really aromatic. And I'd go door to door selling them as air fresheners. <laughs> the people in the neighborhood would just chuck me a quarter out of sheer like sympathy um and then and then i just always had a hustle in high school i was selling blow pops i helped run a card room i had a teacher who um, just passed away recently so we can disclose this now yeah. but we gave him a little piece of the rake we'd run boo-ray games and spades and um and boo-ray yeah mm. and there aren't many people who know that game you know that game <laughs> of course right. of course yeah progressive pot games are where it's at um so so i ran a card room so i always had kind of a side hustle of some mm-hmm. kind. Um, by the time I got to college, I was helping people with their ID situation. And, um, and so I always had that kind of like, I like the entrepreneurial spirit. I like being part of that game. Um, but I also, when I chose the college to go to, I went to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. Mm-hmm. I grew up with, without much money in upstate New York, hadn't really had the, the chance to travel abroad. It looked so exciting. And it was the one like 
super high quality undergraduate program in the country that didn't have a math requirement because um, mm. I just didn't want to go back to math anymore. And so, um, so that was really fun. And I was pretty good at school. I loved studying and traveling abroad. I was in Ecuador, uh, El Salvador, Spain, Ireland, studying, living, working a little bit. Um, and then when I came out of there, though, when you asked, like, what was my dream? At that point, I wanted to just make some money. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not coming from money and being sure. exposed to so much money at school. That, that did become my focus. And it sounds, um, you know, less poetic or something like that. Like, I think people take various paths to Silicon Valley. Mine was just, like, I want to make some money. And I think the best way to make some money is to be on that entrepreneurial path. Now, as a non-engineer on the East Coast who wasn't in, like, the Stanford network world and stuff, mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out a way to seat at the table. An MBA program wanted years of work experience first. Yeah. I didn't have that, and I didn't have the time to do it. I was going to start paying back all these student loans. So I went to law school. Um, my dad was a small-town lawyer in partnership with my grandfather. I interned at the DA's office when I was 15. Wow. I got some exposure to that. I'm like, all right, I can do law school pretty easily. It just comes naturally to me. So I did that. But with an eye not to become like a litigator and a trial lawyer, but with an eye, how do, what's the fastest path to get a seat at the table in Silicon Valley? So that worked out. I got hired at Fenwick and West. It was sweet. I was in the center of all the deals. And then four days before September 11th, they fired me. They laid off my whole class. Yeah. And I was just, for four days, I thought I had job prospects. Then the Twin Towers come down and I'm like, oh, there's no chance I'm getting How was that? How was that feeling? Of- well, that was, that was devastating because... I'm lucky enough in that um, my parents have always been middle class. So I, yeah. I had something to fall back on and that I could have moved back to the small town outside of Buffalo, New York. Mm-hmm. But I think compared to my ambitions, that would have been an ultimate failure, right? So I know I was privileged in that a lot of people don't even have that to fall back on. Um, you know, to, to have to suffer that kind of, you know, setback was just daunting. So I just considered that not to be an option. And I said, all right, I'm going to have to figure it out. Now, along the way, I'd also borrowed a ton of money. I was day trading um, stocks all through, uh, all through law school. And at one point, I was a 12 millionaire. And a few days later, I, literally, I was a negative four millionaire. And so wow. the market crashed. I had all this leverage. I was in real trouble. So not only, fast forward, not only did I lose my job, but I also... By the time I'd negotiated down, owed $2.125 million in my own name. Couldn't go bankrupt on it. You know, like I was just screwed. Um, and so I, I, I didn't consider failure an option. I was like, all right, right. this is a setback, but I got to do something about it. Um, it sounds insane now in retrospect because that's more than most people will ever make in a lifetime. I just didn't give myself the option not to do it. Uh, so I set about building adult versions of side hustles and yeah. stuff to try and do it. I had a business card at first that said Chris Saka and uh, attorney at law. And I would go to like these conferences, in Silicon Valley and tell people my story. And they'd be like, you sound like a smart kid. Things will work out for you. And I'm like, Shit, they don't understand. Like I got to make rent like this week. Yeah. Um, so I ended up creating a business card that said um, uh, the Salinger group. I just came up with a name <laughs> and I put my name on it. Chris Saka principal of the Salinger group. And, um, Crystal, who's now my wife, was my best friend for a long time. She designed the logo for me. It looked badass. And I would just go out to those same events. It was weed. Like, I lived in a, can't, I'm make, probably a couple dozen square foot apartment. It was a hovel um, with the bed and the kitchen and everything all in one little room. 
But I was just trying to scrap it together, taking a little equity, trying to be helpful. Um, and that started the turnaround. But by the way, along the way, I was doing gigs off of Craigslist, yeah. Elance. I was taking 50 bucks for, I even did a voiceover for an audio book once. I heard yeah. that you, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I heard that you sent out 784 resumes. That's exactly right. And heard no replies. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was devastated. And I took the time, too, to like really tailor my, my cover letter and my resume to exactly the job description, because a lot of people have software you know, that looks at those things. I got zero. In fact, of that group of people that I sent those resumes to were all the members of this list called the Midas list. So Forbes, every year, calculates the top uh, 100 investors in tech. And it's called their Midas list. Like, wow. who's got the Midas yeah. touch? And so I got the issue, and I, and I wrote to all of them that I could get an address on and didn't hear back. And so um, fast forward <laughs> later, that is the only list that has ever mattered to me. Yep. That is the only list I ever wanted to get on. I was never on a 30 under 30 or 40 under 40, or I don't even think they do 50 under 50s. But, uh, but that list was the one that was important to me. When I finally, later in my career, started making it on that list, I, like, you come into my office, that shit's on the wall. Like, that was the one that mattered. The tenacity that you have, man, um, it's kind of been the hallmark of your life. I, I can relate to that. Um, being a 20-year-old kid who leaves school early and everybody talks about <clears throat> and says you're making a bad decision. I believe in myself. You get to the NBA and get drafted late second round and I have no money, um, no guaranteed money. And so the struggle, and it's funny how people perceive you now. Oh, Chris Sock is this great investor. He's a successful man. But a lot of people know the struggle that pushed us to where we are now. And I remember having holes in my shoes as a kid, middle-class family, similar to yours. And I think there's something to be said about that, um, the struggle that pushes you to where you are now. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll never, I'll never say that my upbringing was the kind of struggle that I know that I've, that I've since had the exposure to, that, I've, mm -hmm. that I understand so many people in this country grapple with. And I think that's getting worse mm -hmm. for so many people. Mm -hmm. We don't have that safety net we used to. Jobs that used to be safe careers with retirements are now just hourly jobs without health care. And so, you know, I think for a lot of people, the obstacles they're overcoming are, are harder than ever. You know mm -hmm. what? Think back two generations, we had this thing called the GI Bill, which is basically like you fought, you gave up that sacrifice. Now you can get access to money for college and mm -hmm. home loans. And, you know, and as long as you get up in the morning, there's a job waiting for you. Yeah. And for too many people, that's not the reality. So I want to just preface it by just saying, like, I feel incredibly lucky for the way I was raised, that I had um, two parents at home who cared about where I was headed, who made sure that when some of my friends are goofing off, I was at home, being safe, doing work, that kind of thing. Um, and so let's just say that up front. That said, there still is some social and economic mobility in this country. Yeah. Probably more than anywhere else, even though I think the situation's worsening. You know, right. I think we have an education divide, a healthcare divide, even a food divide. Like yes. we have just food deserts in this country, you know, places yes. where you can't get healthy groceries. That's right. So that said, there still is some opportunity there, and it is the root of, you know, what makes America, America mm -hmm. right now. It's kind of the last thing we can cling to. You know, we piss all of our environment. We're, you know, like, there's a host of problems here, but that's one of the last paths to opportunity. My personal <clears throat> motto along the way has been, um, it may be lucky, but it's not an accident. Yeah. Like, I can look back at my path and see individual moments that feel very lucky. This person introduced me to this person. 
this person happened to show up at a moment when I was doing something incredible. Somebody at work came and said, will you work on this project with me that ended up elevating my career? And it's easy to look back at each of those and be like, damn, what if that person didn't introduce me to the other person who ended yeah. up being really crucial to me? Right? We call them single points of failure. Yeah. If that didn't happen, maybe it all falls apart. But you have to believe, I think if, you, if you're really on your way to be something special, you have to believe that even if person A didn't introduce you to person B, mm-hmm. and at some other point, awesome person C was going to introduce you to awesome person D, mm-hmm. and something similar was going to happen. And mm-hmm. even though your life might have gone in a different direction, it was also going to be great because you put yourself in that situation. You created that opportunity. You worked that hard. I mean, going to school for math, you know, like going to night school at college for math while I was in high school was not wow. easy, right? It meant passing up a lot of nights playing cards with my buddies and stuff. And I still did. Luckily, I stayed in my regular grade in school and still had dates and still played sports and stuff like that. But it comes with some sacrifice. You didn't get to do what you're doing by having a normal life and not working your ass off all the time. It's just. Yeah. Um, and so, so what I try to do is not apologize for all that work yeah. I did. Right. Recognize <clears throat> the privilege and the good fortune that got me there. But realize that as I look at all these people who you would consider to be overnight successes. Right. You know, right. like 10 to 15 years is a pretty good overnight success <laughs> in our industry. Like 10 to 15 years of, of obsessive, obsessive work. You know? So you mentioned moments, and I think we're at a segment in the podcast where I kind of want to share about a point of no return. I'm all in. I'm a risk taker in this very moment. What was your, or give me an example, what was your moment? There are many moments. But- yeah, I have a few of those, but one, <laughs> one that sticks out for me was it's 2007. I have risen through the ranks at Google um, to where my name is, he- or my title is Head of Strategic Initiatives. I work for Eric Schmidt, Larry and Sergey, David Drummond on solving just big, honking, awesome problems. They gave mm-hmm. me $4.7 billion to take to the FCC Spectrum auction and just stir stuff up, mess with wow. the wireless companies. Like I was building. Uh, billion dollar data centers around the world, like the server farms that hold all our stuff. I was part of the Wi-Fi team. I like co-headed the Wi-Fi team at the time and got to work on all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> and, um, and one day it just started to feel like a big company to me. I was showing up to meetings and people were like, wait, they started defining themselves by their territory. Wait, you're the wireless guy. Why are you in this YouTube meeting? And I'd be like, mm. well, because Eric asked me to try and unscrew this whole situation. So I thought it'd be helpful. And they're like, yeah, but you're the wireless guy. And instead of all being on the same team, people started really just being like, well, this deal should be done by my team. Your deal should, you know, and it just really felt like it was big company stuff now. Okay. Nobody was looking out for Google as much as they were looking out for their so, own little territory. Yeah. And so I just told Eric, Larry, and Sergey that I was leaving. And what do you mean you're leaving? <laughs> right. I was just like, I'm out. I just, I feel like I miss startups. I miss when we were all on the same team. And, yeah. you know, um, in the early days, I sat with the head of all operations, a guy who was like employee number six there um, named Urs Holzel. And one of the smartest people I've ever met. We shared an office. Nobody at Google had their own office. We all shared, no matter how fancy you were. They were all small. I saw a contract come by in my email for the company ski trip to Truckee, California, where I ended up living in Squaw Valley. And it was going to be $800 a person for two days, one night. And I just sighed under my breath, like, damn, that sounds like a lot of money. And the guy who ran all of like operations and half engineering overheard me. He's like, how much is it? Like $800. Now this guy is literally like, has a budget of billions of dollars buying servers, buying chips and all this stuff. And he's like, let me see that. And so I showed it to him. He's like, that's crap. He's like, 
what's their phone number? And he, we look on the contract for the phone number, and he just calls up. He's like, hey, this is worse from Google. That's way too much money. We're not going to come unless you do something about it. And they're like, okay, I guess we can make it 400 bucks. He's like, thanks, bye. And I was like, that's amazing. Like, that guy just stopped his work to do something for the company, and everyone gave him a pat on the back for it because we're all one team. As the company got bigger and people started keeping their own score, it was mm. frustrating. So I just told the guys I was leaving. Wow. It didn't make any sense. I didn't have a plan. I wasn't rich. I was going to be an angel investor, but I had less than a million dollars. Normally, to be an angel investor, if you're going to break off, you know, 25 and 50K. It's a lot of money. Chunks, you better have a lot of money to back that (laughs) up, right? For most guys, that's just plenty of money. Um, And so I really needed that money. I didn't really have it. Um, But I just left. And I was feeling pretty good about it. They had a nice going away party for me and stuff like that. And then right around Christmas time, I was back home for the holidays, and the New York Times wrote an article. And essentially, it said something like, why would this guy leave the greatest job in the world? And I was just like, hmm. oh, my God, what have I done? I started crying at my mom and dad's table. Like, I just left the greatest job in the world. I was like, those guys just gave me all these cool challenges and an unlimited budget. And I was making money. And, um, and so and I left about like $10, 15000000 million on the table when I left there. They just gave me a big new stock grant and stuff. So, so I didn't get rich while I was there because I was hired as a junior person. But. I, wow. I walked away from a lot of money, but it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. I suddenly was in control of my own destiny. In fact, I had a mentor who since passed away, this guy, Coach Campbell. Mm-hmm. He was a mentor to Steve Jobs and Eric Schmidt. Wow. And a bunch of amazing people. I called him Coach because I think he was a football coach at Columbia for a while. Okay. Not a winning okay. coach, I think, but <laughs> an incredible personal yeah. coach. Um, and I asked him, I had offers to like join a couple like a hedge fund or a private equity fund or another venture fund. And he said, no, start your own thing. You suck at having a boss. And I was like, God, that is a really good insight. I do suck at having a boss. So I started my own thing. Even then, I didn't really have a plan. Um, uh, and, and mentors along the way just kind of yeah. were like, look, you should just pull the trigger. I'm like, I don't know how to manage anybody else's money. My first investor is like, well, if you can raise $6 million, we'll give you $2 million. And then you can use our accountants to manage the back office. They said the hardest part is the deal work. Like, don't let the finance stuff get in the way. And so within a couple of years, I, I was a venture capitalist. And that was not, so I wish I could tell you like, hey, I grew up in Palo Alto and like saw right. these VCs and knew I wanted to do that. Or, you know, working in the MIT Media Lab, right. you know, I got exposed to the future and I wanted <clears> to shape the future or anything like that. I kind of just bumped and bruised along the way, um, you know. Fast forward from there, now had the most successful venture fund of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and in the beginning, it was hard to convince anyone to invest their money with me. Now there's more than we could ever want. Sure. But I had to do this. Uh, I had to take inventory a couple of years ago, and it took me back to that math thing again. Like, I'm really, really good at venture investing, but is this really what I like to do? And it turns out, no. Right. Like, I, um, and, and I think the biggest thing when you go back to that red zone moment, yeah. <clears throat> whether it was quitting going to college for math, um, whether it was walking away from Google when I was finally getting successful and powerful there, or whether it was quitting the venture industry when I was at the very top of the game, I finally made it to, I think, number two on that Midas list. I never made it to number one. Let me shake one. your hand for that. You no, know, I just, I, I've got them all on the, around, the, around the office. Um, I finally, I was like, 
They gave me the cover and numbered. I'm like, I'll take it. I'm done. Um, but, but I think in each of those moments, it was realizing no one else in the world has your same scorecard in front right. of them. No one else in the world knows your priorities. Not even your spouse, not even your closest friends, not your family. Like when you grow up, you've got family hopefully looking out for you, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're selflessly thinking about what's best for you. Mm-hmm. Some of that, though, is imposing their will on you, right? Right. You, you hopefully have some teachers looking out for you. Like, this is what's good for you. Mm-hmm. This is, um, like, hopefully you've got someone in the rest of your life outside mm-hmm. of school. Maybe you've got some friends there, or some distant relatives, or, you know, maybe someone from your faith all trying mm-hmm. to look out and help you along mm-hmm. the way. You get to college, you're lucky enough to go to college. Hopefully you've got some professors who realize there's a spark in you, they want to spend some time. Hopefully you got some good classmates doing that. But when you finally graduate and you're out in that corporate world or you're, in the, you're a professional athlete or you're in entertainment, like, you sooner realize like, there's no dad there. There's no mom there. There's no like, benevolent, selfless professor looking out for you there. Like, you're, you're a piece of an overall machine. You're a cog. And they know their selfish interest and why you're there and how you're helpful to them. And even if they try, like I think all of us try and pay it forward or mentor somebody, Mm -hmm. but I can't take my story and impose it on somebody else. You know, I think that's a trap we all fall into. If I say like, hey, look, it worked for me, so it'll work for you. That just, there is no cookie cutter way to do this. I agree. So there's this moment where you have to come to grips with, okay, there might be some well-intentioned people around me, but nobody else actually knows my motivations, my passions, Mm -hmm. my interests, my fulfillment, my happiness, my peace better than I do. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's scary because in the age of Twitter and bloggers and reporters everywhere, when you make some of these moves, everyone's like, what the hell? That's yeah. stupid. That's dumb. Why would you do this, et cetera? And it, it can create some self-doubt. But I think that's one of the most powerful things is how to check, like, what matters to me right now? You know? I mean, go ahead. No, that's powerful because um, in the midst of all of your success and your ascension to being one of the great investors in, in America, around the world, um, family i know it's important to you and what you're saying is that you're intentional about your energy and your time especially as you get older and you value that and i can i can hear that how tell us about your time with your family and the balance between being this great investor and in these businesses and helping mitigate risk and all this and also being a family man and how important that is yeah i so some of the people I respect most in this business are the people who can pull it off with family. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean on the investing side, also on the founding side, mm-hmm. or as executives in some of these companies. I worked with this woman named Susan Wojcicki a lot when we were at Google. Um, hers was the actual garage that Larry and Sergey, when they got kicked off the Stanford campus running their business, they were running their wow. original business in the dorms and the servers were making the dorm rooms too hot. So they, had, they got kicked off to a garage, and it was her garage. So she's been involved since the early days. But she's brilliant um, and ran a huge chunk of the ads business at Google. So billions and billions of dollars. And I, I loved the way she managed. I never worked for her, but being in her orbit was amazing. We'd go into meetings, and they might be scheduled for an hour, but if the work was done in 37 minutes, she just called it. She kept it so that things were always low drama. She just you could tell if you disappointed her, you could tell if you pleased her, but she didn't let her heart rate get crazy with it. Her day ended at five. You were not going to you know, interact with her wow. at 5.01. And then it was family time. And then she would come back online around 10. 
and do a little email before she went to sleep then. And it was just this, I really admired because her relationship with her family built efficiency into her work and, um, and prioritization. I love when, you know, I've got a, uh, a nephew who just joined one of the greatest architecture firms in the world. Um, wow. And um, my wife and I were telling him, like, look, you're in your 20s. This is the time when you can just spend all hours at work, have no balance. You, you don't need any, you know, and sure enough, we hit him the other night. It was like midnight. He's like, yeah, I just ate dinner. I'm still cranking here. And we were laughing because we both been through that phase in yes. our career. But you have the luxury when you have all that time in your day, you have the luxury of not having to make any prioritization choices. I'm just saying I can stay up all night and do this stuff. Like you lose track of whether it's a Tuesday or a Saturday, exactly. you know, you're in one of those environments. But then you start building a relationship and you have kids in the picture and you have to make really good choices. And I think those can actually make you a better business person. I think having a, a partner and children um, starts to grow that sense of empathy that might have been there. It starts to help you. Look, hanging out with kids hopefully builds that other lens in the world, that new discovery that like not everyone sees the world the same way, right? We have a monoculture that keeps building products for mostly white guys, Stanford and MIT graduates. Start hanging out with kids. Um, hopefully your partner is developing that sense of empathy. You're hanging out with other parents. You're paying more. I mean, once you have kids, you walk in any park, any city, and you can go in for the dad handshake with any other dad, right? No matter what you do for a living, suddenly Period. you're in a conversation. President, you share, mayor. You share <laughs> this tribe. Like, um, but, but so I think, and then, and then as you make those decisions, like, all right, my kid's singing in a concert, or I want to yeah. make sure I make this meal, or somebody's right. sick today. It starts building these priorities for you, and you start building better to-do lists. And so I actually think that stuff can make you better. I think you can also screw stuff up if you don't yeah. take advantage. You know, I know, I, I know people who are incredible business people, don't know their kids' names, their kids are a mess, wow. they don't parent, wow. you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's like their relationships fall apart. So I think there is the opportunity to screw it all up. Mm-hmm. But I think balance can be achievable mm-hmm. with good prioritization. We, um, we, have a, we have some good friends who are a couple that are chefs. Um, and they, um, they together run a restaurant. Okay. And they have two little kids. So they've actually taught their kids. They've shifted their sleep schedules so that the kids kind of sleep at the beginning, like during restaurant hours, and then wake up uh, at like 10, 30, 11 for a couple hours when the parents are done chefing. So they actually get some family time. Sounds crazy, but it's the only way they would be able to be Absolutely. present for those years of those kids' lives. Then they put them back to bed for a few hours until the morning starts. And, you know, you want to be there, um, but if you're chefing all the time, and so they're living their dream as restaurateurs. But so anyway, I do, for me, I, I deeply believe um, in that priority. I'll also say too, my kids are growing up with a lot of privilege, yeah. which means they have a higher um, likelihood than most of turning out to be jerks. Right, of not understanding work, of not understanding the human condition. Higher likelihood of not um, appreciating how hard the struggle is for so many people in our country and beyond. Um, because it'd be much easier for them to just have stuff handed to them along the way, right? And so it's, it's so crucial. Like I actually, <laughs> my wife and I realized like that's going to require extra work on our part yes. to undo some of that privilege and to make sure they have a deep appreciation for everyone who gets up in the morning and busts their ass. Yes. It, it, in, 
in any you know part of the society. People um, from every walk of life and culture, and however they, whether they were born here, or they came here, and it's just it's really important for us. That How do you balance that? that? Because, and this is a good segue because my kids are now getting to a point where they know who daddy is and they recognize what they have. And I asked my dad, I said, dad, I said, how do you do this parent thing? Just off the cusp. And he says, son, I don't know how to parent the way you're, I mean, I just don't know because I had to keep you and your sister off the streets, gangs. Right. You know, we were in the hood and we were in bad environments. And he, there was an element that he had to keep us away from. He said, your kids are privileged. They have everything at their exposure. And he said, just continue to teach them how to value people and respect and honor people yeah. and things. And how do you balance that? Because I want my kids to have better than what I had, obviously. Yeah. But not to the point to where it makes them, to your point, jerks. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's two components to that. Um, one is uh, just like two days ago, something really cool happened with my kids. So our girls are almost seven, five, and almost three. Okay. Um, and... We got some time to spend with Scott Harrison, who founded Charity Water. It's a, it's a nonprofit that we've been longtime supporters of okay. um, that digs clean water wells in 26 countries and provides toilets and sanitation. So wow. clean water is at the base of everything. Once mm-hmm. people start getting clean water, not only do they stop dying and being sick, but mm-hmm. women in many of these cultures are the people who fetch water mm-hmm. so they can stop fetching water and instead go to school. And it just really compounds. These communities start thriving. Um, and so Scott was hanging out and he said, you know, it's time to tell your girls the story of charity water. I was like, really, are they going to get it? And he's like, yeah, watch this. So he put together a little, a little slide presentation that he'd kind of taken from the main story and adapted for them. And what I realized was that while our kids don't really understand money yet Mm -hmm. and they don't understand, like, you know, we try and do that, like the concept of wages and expenses and stuff like that it's hard still because they're little what kids deeply understand is fairness and justice mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. they understand when something's not fair yeah so as scott started to tell the story about how kids in ethiopia their same age look like them mm-hmm. don't have access to clean water and so they get sick and they throw up and and showing the water that they go and pull their their family drinking water from is literally shared with with cattle and goats like it clicked for our kids. That is not fair. So even though they don't understand right. all the economics behind it, they're like, that's messed up. And so Scott also broke something to him that we hadn't really explained to them before, which is when each of them was born, we asked everybody, please don't send any like pink gifts. Our girls aren't princesses. You know, like don't box them in. Do us a favor, right. donate to charity water yeah. and let's build a clean water well in their names. Um, and so each of these girls has clean water wells throughout Africa with their names on them. Let's say like this well brought to you by happy birthday, Circle Luna Tahoe Saka, you know, or, or CC11. Um, and so, so Scott actually pulled up the pictures of those wells. And our girls, I didn't think they would get it, but they wow. just, they lit up. They're like, wait, my birthday helped 300 people yeah. in Malawi like drink clean water every day. And even more than 300 people like they focus so much on the kids. My birthday helped make it help create fairness for these other kids. I mean, you know, you split a cookie the wrong way, like you don't get a 50-50 and there's going to be meltdowns. Correct. Kids. Correct. kids get Correct. fairness, right? They do. And so when you say it's not fair that these other kids, 
And so it was funny. That was just a couple days ago. All three kids are like, like two of them already had their birthdays and they all now they're like, I can't wait for my next birthday. Can I give it to charity water? Can I help these kids? It's wonderful. And so, and so I think while their journey is never going to be the same as ours, where you got to get that minimum wage job and kick the money back to your parents so that everybody, yeah. you know, like to take the edge off the plate for your family. Um, I think we can try to build that in through just deep and intimate exposure to people whose lives are, who live in very different connect, uh, conditions. You know, I spent time with um, Brian Stevenson this week. He's the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen Brian Stevenson's TED Talk, it's one of the most compelling okay. ever. He fights on behalf of children who are on death row. Okay. This country still executes children. Mm-hmm. Wow. We try children as adults mm-hmm. and execute. And almost all those children are, like, basically all of them are black. And, you know, you're 22 mm-hmm. times more likely to be executed um, for um, a crime if you're black and the victim is white than if you're white and the victim is black. Mm-hmm. It's just nuts. Mm-hmm. So Brian's a guy who's always personally inspired us. But um, we were with a small group, and we asked him, so what can people in this room do to be helpful to your cause? And he, of course, was like, hey, here's some places you can give to. Come visit the, the new monument they did, memorial they did um, in Alabama, commemorating um, our history of lynchings in this country. But the number one thing he said was, get to know the people on whose behalf you want to advocate. Mm-hmm. Get to know them. Build relationships. Like, you want to change the criminal justice system? You need to get to know people who are on the other side of that mm-hmm. criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Like, it's hard to mm-hmm. effectively advocate from far away. Mm-hmm. And that was something that, you know, my, my wife and I have been leading um, visits to maximum security prisons mm-hmm. here in California, oh. juvenile facilities and maximum security facilities, and making sure they're, you know, like they're hug it out visits, not just from behind the glass and getting to know people. Um, one of my buddies, um, just got noticed. He just got resentenced. He's been there 23 years and he's coming out in a couple months. Um, and so, so we're trying to do the same thing with our kids is that like, instead of making it virtual, make sure they know and have relationships with people who are growing up or who by virtue of condition, uh, being born in the wrong place or the color of their skin, get to know their plight and their condition. And so that hopefully they can develop that sense of empathy, that sense of service and duty and obligation. Um, Not just from, you know, I think those of us who all had crappy jobs, like I tend not to hire anyone who hasn't had a crappy job because I feel like they don't understand how good we've got it. Our worst day in the investing world doesn't compare to a good day working in a restaurant, right? Like, like does not compare to a good day working prep in a kitchen or on the line, you know? let alone fast food or retail or construction. Yeah. I mean, I, I had construction jobs. We were so grateful. My mom and dad made sure we had crappy jobs starting at age like 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think not only do I have a deep appreciation for people who work those jobs, but also just for, um, for the human condition. When they go home, like that, that 4 or $6 an hour I was making, you know, bought me a little spending money for the summer and stuff like that, or I could save it up and, you know, buy whatever bike I was, you know, going for. But thinking about people putting food on the table for families, yeah, trying to pay for hospital bills and stuff like that, it informs that condition. Our kids may not end up having those jobs. I'd love to, but we also right. like to move around and travel and stuff, so that mm-hmm. might screw them up. So in parallel, if I can create those opportunities. So when we travel, it's travel with service in mind. So we're exploring, but we're also going there to be helpful. That may cultivate that same sense for them, I hope. 
but I, I Brian Stevenson's words are they're fresh, but they're still echoing with me, which is like really get to know the people who yeah. you want to advocate on behalf of, build personal relationships there. In this podcast, I was thinking in my mind, um, I could quantify your life in three three words. Um, the first phase of your life, it sounds like it was survival mode. And then you transition to success mode. And now you're at a place in your life where it's about significance. So talk about that a little bit about how now your life is now more about serving. And it's always probably been about serving, but serving really on a high level, helping others, philanthropic work that you're doing. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah, significance is a good word. We also think about as impact, right? Yeah. Yep. How to go from success to impact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, meaning, fulfillment, giving back, paying yep. it forward, whatever you want to, you know, I think there's a lot of adequate ways to express that. But so a few things. I mean, one, we've got resources to be helpful. Mm-hmm. And with those resources comes some responsibility. I remember when I first saw Larry and Sergey at Google make billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Neither of them got happy. Yeah. And I, I was wow. really close to them. I mean, I saw other people like during the IPO were like, woo, and started buying crazy cars and, right. you know, islands and stuff. But Larry and Sergey just suddenly felt burdened. And I didn't get it because I was still paying back my student loans. I would have mm-hmm. killed to have that kind of mm-hmm. money. Um, and yet I started to get it more and more as, as good fortune befell me. I was like, with this comes some real responsibility to affect some change. Mm-hmm. To, to help those who don't have this to solve problems. Um, so that's one thing is the resources. Two is I just, I'm wrapping up that phase of my career where I was professionally solving problems. Mm-hmm. I was either helping find problems that exist in the world and a startup would be built to try and address those mm-hmm. or solve problems within that startup, mm-hmm. right? So how do we unscrew this situation, get the right team in here, get rid of that person, grow, attract the people. How do we tell the story? How do we get other investors or acquirers to come in? How do we communicate to customers what we're actually doing here? How do we help the users understand this product so well they can explain it to other users because we don't have a marketing budget? Mm -hmm. How do we do something that nobody else has done at scale so it's not just 10% cheaper, but it's 10 times cheaper Mm -hmm. so we can get these things in everybody? How do we figure out what the assumptions are in a model you launch a car service like Uber, everyone's like, how will you do this without owning any cars? Yeah. Well, it turns out it'd be really expensive yeah. to you if you own the cars, and so you lever it. But how do we go after brand new approaches to stuff? You know, we have, um, here in LA, we have Shivani Saroyer, the CEO of Tala, one of the mm. greatest CEOs I've ever come across. She has an app that when you download it in Kenya, Tanzania, the Philippines, Mexico, India, it instantly determines how credit worthy you are and can make you a money, a mobile money loan on the spot. Wow. In those places that have mobile money. And so she's got people in Kenya, literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are borrowing money. Some of them don't have a permanent address. Some of them like have been most of them have been frozen out of the traditional banking mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. But she figured a way to pass all that and her repayment rates are higher than a lot of FICO based loans here in the United States, right? Wow. And so wow. uh, and so we came from an environment of that, of, of these radical, bold solutions to problems. And now we've got the resource and we're backing off. And we're starting to prioritize other, what we consider to be bigger problems. You know? And I say we because my wife, Crystal, is my partner in all mm-hmm. this. Um, but so Crystal and I, we got to a point where we just couldn't be excited about the newest app anymore. Like, you know, I just started saying no to stuff. I realized I wasn't even giving it a chance, you know? 
like the Snapchat guys came and pitched me right here in LA really early on. They came up after a talk I gave. We're like, we love you. We love how you do business. We love you to get involved. And I was like, the dick pics? Like, really? How does that, you know? And I just started saying no to stuff. I wasn't even getting into like a fair shake, right? That probably, that literally probably cost me a billion dollars. Um, I was going to ask you, do you yeah. have any regrets at all? Yeah, of course any, I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, look, I told the Airbnb guys at the time, they were like, it was like renting out a room in somebody's house while they were still staying there. I was like, guys, come here. I didn't want to embarrass in front of anybody else. I'm like, what you're building right now is dangerous and somebody's <laughs> going to get raped or murdered and the blood is going to be on your hands. And they're like, uh, okay, buddy. Um, so I missed that one. I've got a bunch of these. I told Dropbox that Google Drive was wow. going to kill them. They would never succeed. Wow. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm wrong a lot. When I'm right, I'm really, really right. right. But I'm wrong more. I'm wrong very often. Uh, in this business, you're going to, if you're going to be doing this, you're going to. Yeah. You're probably, you know, like who knows what ratio it is. Um, you know, we've probably lost money on half or 40% of our investments, you know, but, um, but when you're right, you're really, really right. It only takes a couple to define that stuff for you. Um, but so, yeah. And by the way, now that I'm out, I still feel FOMO when I see it, you know, an acquisition get announced <laughs> and I look at who the investors are. I'm like, shit, even if I didn't see that deal. Like, damn, that guy's getting rich. Uh, I still feel it. It's still competitive, right? Still, oh, absolutely. I'm like, shit, should I get back? Uh, um, but so, so those things, the resources combined with this history. And, and by the way, at Google, you know, one of the ways you get laughed out of the room there was to show up with too small an idea. So if you went into that. Larry Page yeah. with like a mediocre, you know, like, <laughs> hey, we'll just do a trial. We'll, you know, he would just give you this look. He has this look like who farted, you know, it's just like, and you're like, fuck, I just let him, like, you got to roll out because you're like, you just let Larry Page down. So you got to just come with these big ideas. Like Google did not mess around. You know, we were trying to make sure that you've heard about net neutrality. We were trying to make sure that you could download all the apps you wanted on your phone. And in the early days of mobile, you couldn't do that. You had to get the apps that T-Mobile approved you to get or who, like you could. And so like, how do we do this? So we're meeting with the different carriers and like me with Verizon Wireless and AT&T be like, mm-hmm. please guys. And it wasn't happening. So somebody on my team came up with this idea. Well, what if we just, uh, I, I came up with the idea. What if we buy the spectrum and Larry and Sergey were a little freaked out about that. Eric was like, I don't know. And then Larry was like, you know what? That could be a cool idea. And so one of our buddies on, the, on our team came up with the idea. Like, what if we play this kind of jujitsu where we go into the auction they're going to auction off this huge piece of spectrum. And we say, look, put some openness rules on it. Whoever buys this has to allow net neutrality on their wireless spectrum. And we're like, that's genius. So we go write letters like, hey, this stuff should be open. And Verizon's like, yes, that's easy for you to say. But, you know, when we end up buying it, it takes billions of dollars to operate it and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And so this guy on our team was like, well, let's guarantee them the minimum price then. Let's guarantee $4.7 billion. And we're like, that's some crazy shit. Okay. You know, and like Larry and Sarah are like, yes, that's how we think here. Come over the top. Wow. So we played this huge hand of poker that we intended to lose, but we were sending all these signals in the market. We were meeting with all these people about building our own network in the hopes that Verizon AT&T would realize like they would hear back to the room and we're like, oh my God, these guys are serious about building their own network. Like they're here to take us on. They had to pay the $4.7 billion. Everyone got net neutral spectrum. That's why you can download the apps that you want to download today. Uh-huh. And so, but it was just, it was like a huge, huge dice roll and a huge bluff. And so 
So I take those lessons and mm. building stuff that was just huge. I mean, even Gmail, like in the early days of email, I remember you had room to like keep like 50 messages and you had to start deleting stuff because right. you run out of space, right? Gmail was like, what if we gave everyone virtually unlimited space? <sighs> then what could happen as a result is it becomes where they start and end their whole day. It becomes their archive. Mm. It be, you know, and if mm-hmm. we build search over that, this anchors everything. It worked, right? It was crazy. Everyone's like, you're going to lose all your asses on that. But it worked. Wow. And so we took that same kind of knowledge. And we're like, okay, we've got the resources now. But we also have this different way of approaching problems. And so when we look at causes that we really care about, mm-hmm. um, right now, um, climate is probably one of the top of the list. Climate mm-hmm. affects everything. It, it's not just like, oh, shit, it's hot out today. Like, right. it creates famine. It creates war. It creates upheaval. Uh, the poorest of the world are most affected by it. It, it helps spread disease. These fires aren't an accident right now. Um, mm-hmm. It obviously wipes out ecosystems. Mm-hmm. You know, the fish people, you know, count on to eat, go away. Industries are all, it's, it's a real mm-hmm. thing right now. Um, I think it's the number one most pressing issue on the planet. And we're way past, like the Paris Treaty, even if Trump lived up to it, doesn't even get us close right. to what we need to do right now. So, we could kind of give some money to like promote some ads and be like, hey, turn off your light switches, you know, and like help save the planet. That mm-hmm. doesn't actually do anything, right? So we're trying to fund research and, and not even just research, experiments right now mm-hmm. in scalable ways that we can take some carbon out of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's very cool experimental technologies doing that or help brighten and whiten clouds to reflect back some of the sun and help mm. cool the planet. Turns out you can just create clouds out in the ocean and then reflect back sun. Yeah, wow. yeah, there's cool stuff. Or grow <laughs> algae in the ocean. Algae eat carbon. If you feed them yeah. iron filings, they use that. They eat carbon, then they sink to the bottom of the ocean. Wow. And they keep the carbon there for a long time. Um, you know, like growing trees and cutting them down, burning them, but when you burn them, capture the carbon and then grow trees in their place again. Um, take little pieces of limestone and basalt hmm. dust and sprinkle it over farmer's fields. And then that sucks yeah. up some of the carbon and sinks it into the, and it's actually a good fertilizer too. And so there's these very cool wow. technologies that are being explored right now that, you know, we go to some of these guys and they're like, well, we are going to write a grant and it was going to take 10 years and we're going to do some theoretical modeling. And we're like, with a million dollars, could you just put this in a farmer's field starting tomorrow? gather some data and see how that turns out in a couple of years. And if so, then we can just do it all over the world. And, um, and they're like, well, yeah. And we're like, okay, well, that's kind of the Google Silicon Valley way. Let's just like stop talking about it and get to work. Right. So these cloud brightening people were just like, so what do you need? You just throw some, you go to these really humid places, you throw some dust into the air from a ship, clouds start forming, it cools the planet. And you're like, so wow. why isn't that starting tomorrow? Wow. And so we're always looking for ways that we can take the resources we have and apply them in this crazy, bold, scalable way to really change a problem, right? Wow. You're still competitive. You're still motivated. You're still motivated and competitive. Well, I'm still also kind of a perfectionist about stuff. Yeah, I still am very, very demanding. Plays here. I'm hard to work for. Uh, (laughs) I love it. We, yeah, even before we put a document out, how many revisions do we do? Yeah. Wow. 45 drafts. Yeah, that's a good point. We just, uh, uh, my wife and I are pretty serious about the stuff we take on. I love it. We, we are very, 
we want to be proud it's of everything we do. That's yeah. the other thing we try and show our kids. Yeah. Um, you know, my dad, when I was a kid, if I mowed the lawn and like cut some corners or left some, you know, stand around, he would take the blade and lower it a half inch and ask me to do it again. And so, you know, I don't know if I, I was born. I don't think I was born with that work ethic. I do think a lot of it was taught to me. Um, was just like, do a great job, do a great job the first time. And so we demand that of the partners we work with. Yep. Um, but, you know, we're doing a lot of stuff in the criminal justice world right now. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing we're really excited about are these bail funds. Have you come across these bail funds? No. So, no. so um, 91% of people who are jailed but don't have access to bail money, cash bail, plead guilty just to get out. You're in jail. You just want to get out and mm-hmm. get back to your family. But then you plead guilty. You plead guilty. Right. Now you've got a record. That's going to hurt your job. That's going to hurt your prospects for benefits. It's, it's like a Jim spiral. Crow type of setup. Yeah. Oh, it's just, I can go is, down that rabbit hole. It's the yeah. new Jim Crow for yeah. sure. Yeah. And, so, and then you just get caught in this spiral, yeah. right? And now, now you're frozen out of the employment That's economy. Right. So what are you going to do? You're probably going to get back into the criminal economy. It's just bad. Mm-hmm. So, and yet 91% of people without access to that cash plead guilty. Mm-hmm. 54% of people who have access to bail end up having all their charges dismissed. So literally, wow. they have the bail, they show up, and their charges are tossed out. Because mm-hmm. we know a lot of charges mm-hmm. are bullshit anyway. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> and then we've also seen a lot of data that show that bail doesn't actually get people to show up to court. They're either going to show up to court or they're not, right? Um, in fact, a lot of states have eliminated bail. Mm-hmm. And people show up to court with the same frequency that they do in the states. That so it's just bullshit. Right. Is it? It is a punishment on the poorest people in our. That's country. exactly right. The people on the fringe, the people who we really want to do everything we can to keep them in the employment system, to keep them productive, right. to keep their records clean, to keep them earning. Then, then they're not. I mean, this is a funny thing. Um, this is one issue where we and the Koch brothers agree. Like, I think the Koch brothers are some of the most evil people on the planet. They've created a lot of these political problems for us. But strangely enough, I gave a blurb to a book on, um, on prison reform. And, like, right near my blurb was Charles Koch, who was also wow. endorsing this book. Because they just realized it, the prisons are expensive. Yes. People falling out of the employment system are expensive. They end up on more public benefit. Crime rates go up. Like, you want people to stay employed. Um, and so. These bail funds have been this really fascinating idea. It turns out, so uh, you contribute a bunch of money to a fund. That fund is administered by a small group of people who make it available, not as for-profit bail, but as non-profit bail. Mm -hmm. They just put it up for whoever gets arrested. Mm -hmm. That person shows up to court. You get the bail money back, Mm -hmm. and then you just keep recycling that money through. Wow. So with a couple million dollars, you can serve hundreds of people. Absolutely. And make sure that those people have their bullshit charges dismissed and aren't caught up in a system and have their lives ruined all just because they have access to this recycling pool of cash. Right. I think that pool of cash keeps 94% of its money every year. So, so 6% of it is lost to people who don't show up, but 94% sticks around. Yeah. And so that's, that to us is a bold, scalable, crazy way to change that system. Now, what I'd like to do in the meantime is just eliminate cash bail in a lot of places. Luckily, some states are doing that. There are judges who are ruling it, um, you know, cruel and unusual or unfair or violation of the Equal Protection Clause and stuff like that. But, um, but in the meantime, 
it's amazing to think like, okay, you can put the money up on a recycled basis yeah, yeah. And, and start impacting that. This woman, Robin Steinberger, runs that organization. is amazing. She, she's actually here in LA. Um, and, and so that's an initiative that we think is just bold and crazy. Man, okay. This journey has been incredible for you. Um, what would you tell young Chris right now? Young Chris? <laughs> um, oh, God. Well, I would probably tell myself not to day trade. That, that, that definitely set me back a little bit. Uh, it just seemed like easy money at the time, and I was good. I mean, okay. I think one of the temptations we all have, and mm-hmm. I mean, by the way, I think my business, and for the most part, you know, I look at parallels in sports, mm-hmm. like so much of it is managing your own psychology, right? You, you know, you've made literally hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of shots mm-hmm. over your lifetime of practicing and playing. Um, and yet there are those moments where you psych yourself out, you know, where yep. LeBron's looking in your eyes, you know? I mean, I want... Uh, you know, I got to know Kobe. Yeah, um, and I got some stories. I, I once asked Kobe, I was like, tell me about your trash talk. You know, like, what, like, what, I was like, I, I've heard you're one of the best trash talkers in the league. I'm like, what do you say to a guy, you know, to get in his head? And Kobe once told me, um, he's like, oh, I never talk about his playing. Because that, like, that can actually rile some guys up. Like, some guys respond to that. That's, he's like, so I just try and make him question who they are as a person. He's like, maybe who they are as a father or as a son, you know, like who they've let down, who they disappointed. He's like, I really try and make them question that stuff. He's like, that's when the wheels come off and I can just go crazy. (laughs) That was amazing to me, like that insight. Like we're all humans. We all struggle with the psychology. And I think one of the things that I wish I could go back and undo a little bit for me was that when things would go right, I would give my personal skill or genius too much credit. And when things went wrong, I considered it unlucky. And yet, when I really go mm. back and look, mm-hmm. I have to reverse that. And I think this is important for a lot of people to do, is that when things go right, recognize how much of that was timing, good fortune, being in the right place, somebody else helping you out. And when things go wrong, do the postmortem analysis and figure out how you screwed that up, what your blind spot was, what you did. Look, I... When I made that $12 million day trading, it was literally in two stocks. And I started putting my buddies in those stocks. And I, by chance, I had picked one of the highest performing stocks in the NASDAQ in 1999, this this telecom company. Wow. Now, I found all these reasons why it wasn't an accident. Why I was like, well, it's it's a Latin American telecom. I speak Spanish. I spent some time in El Salvador doing telecom work, that must be why this, blah, 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 you know, and then when you get into it at 40 cents and it's trading for 40 bucks, like, suddenly you're convinced you're the man, and when you put your buddies into it, and, like, my buddies from high school are like, dude, I just bought a boat, you know, like, I'm, like, I'm putting a down payment on my cabin, buddies who are bartenders and limo drivers sure. are, like, feeding you, you get that all around you and you start to believe, like, yeah. you're right, I'm a genius, I got the gift, right, and then when it all collapses, so fast and you've got so much borrowed money on it, you lose millions of dollars, you're like, oh man, I just caught a bad market. And so instead you have to turn that around <laughs> I and agree. be like, wow, I was pretty yeah. damn lucky finding yeah. that stock. I took a lot of chances to get there. And the reason I ended up $4 million in debt wasn't because the market fell apart. It was because I borrowed millions of dollars that I didn't have and left myself open to that crazy exposure, yeah. right? And I think, <clears throat> I think that's one of the things we often screw up on 
is that is that we don't reverse that. So I think when things are going right, we got to realize like so much of that is coincidence. Not all of it. Right. We put ourselves in that position. Sure. But so many things have to come together. But when things go wrong, we have to be honest with ourselves about yeah. why. You have to do an honest, humble inventory and learn from that mistake. And it's I think okay that's to embrace about, the risk taker. Yeah, your, the earlier yeah. I could have done that in my career, yeah. the better. Um, the other thing that I feel like I've learned more that I, I wrestle with this every day is write the angry email and then archive it. Don't send it. So <laughs> I, I do this exercise where I just write these absolutely incendiary. I mean, look, in my business, Smart. I still get absolutely effed over all the time. I see people make hmm. horrible decisions, mm-hmm. come at me. You know, one of the things is as successful as I've been, I don't have a massive team. We're not like an empire. So if you take me on, you're just taking me on. And some, mm-hmm. guys, some people still mm-hmm. feel like they should do that. I <laughs> constantly wrestle with, I can let that person know how horrible they are and the low esteem with which I hold them and how much they just effed up. Or I can write that email, archive it, and now I have the information advantage. I know yeah. what they don't know. I still feel like I need to write it. I send it to my <laughs> wife. I send it to Clay and people on my team. I'm like, we all read this. Okay, put it away. I'm like, like um, I could do more of that. But, you know, I think, uh, I don't know. I think that's advice I would give myself earlier on in my career. It's like, people F you over. Yep, that's your information advantage. Yep. Now you know how that person yep. operates. What is next for you? And What mountain is there for you to climb? next for you yeah i mean uh, some of it is uh turning out three amazing gals um yeah continuing to grow my relationship with crystal it keeps getting better yeah um you know one of the things i've been spending a lot of time on people for a long time asked us so why don't you have a more diverse employee base at Mm -hmm. lowercase Mm -hmm. well i think lowercase at its biggest had five people total we've never been big we never even had an office i if I had an office, that would have meant more meetings, and I don't like meetings, so I just was like, well, let's not have an office then. Um, in fact, by the way, when, when I, was in, um, I was on Shark Tank, you know, in the opening of the show, they shoot all these scenes to make you look really rich and powerful, right? And so True. when it was time for the opening, they're like, okay, we're, so we're going to send a crew by your office. And we're like, we don't have one. And they're like, what do you mean? Like, you don't have a place that's lowercase capital? I'm like, nope. Like, just always worked out of my house. Uh, and they're like, well, like what are we going to do? And they're like, okay, then we'll, we'll shoot like all your sports cars. Like we did with Robert. I'm like, we have, we have a Tesla, uh, two Teslas now. Like, but one's the, one's the one we drive his kids to school and it's all, it's all car seats across Private the plane. Back. Yeah. And they're uh, like, they're like, no, and I don't have a plane with her Chevette's name on it. Like, um, and they're like, what about your boat? I'm like, no, I don't have a boat, like huge house. I'm like, my house isn't that big. And I also don't want people to know where I live. So, um, and they're like, well, how is anyone going to believe you're rich? I'm like, I don't know. That's not really my problem. I've never, like, I've never <laughs> tried to project that. So if you watch the show, they like show me getting out of an Uber on the phone, looking all important. They show me raising a wine glass with a bunch of friends. That was like, that was at this random place in San Francisco at 8:30 in the morning. We're all pretending to drink red wine, and then they show what's supposed to look like the lowercase office. They put my logo on a screen, just projected, and it's all my buddies all raising, a, like, you know, like, like cheersing me and laughing fake laughing like <laughs> like i just said the funniest thing all that to try and make me look wealthy um but so so going back i think i really <laughs> my goal is to really try and raise some amazing kids and that takes work and i think this is a culture that has really um has really tried to box girls in you know, like kids used to have a chance to just be kids now yeah. everyone 
wants to just deluge them in pink and the princess industrial complex. And so giving my girls a chance to just be kids, um, they, they love camo pants. They call them hiding pants. They, <laughs> they love wearing their hiding pants with pigtails. And I think just letting themselves express themselves without boxing them in, you know, um, keeping them away from media that paints the idea that they're supposed to be helpless princesses. Right. They, they have themselves decided they like science and engineering yes. and making stuff. And yes. not because I told them to, because we've right. given them the room to do that. Um, and so, um, yeah, my oldest daughter just asked if she could quit soccer to do rock climbing. And I'm like, yes, you can. That Absolutely. sounds amazing. Yeah. In fact, it really saves me Saturdays and Sundays standing in a field with a bunch of people. Um, but so that's one thing. Building a closer relationship with my wife that I yeah. think requires work. You've got to actively work on that. You've got to talk. You've got to admit vulnerabilities. You've got to. It's a, it is active work. The same way you would do in a partnership in your job, I think you've got to invest in that. Um, and when you do, it's just everything's better. You know, it's happier to build more and more trust. Absolutely. And that's something that I didn't, I didn't realize up front. I hadn't been in a relationship like that. How much when you keep investing, it just pays off. Um, and then I started talking about how our firm wasn't diverse. It was just mm-hmm. never that big. Right. And then I said, too, like, if we start hiring diverse people for the jobs here, they're just going to be junior people. Mm-hmm. And so the idea I came up with years ago now, I don't know, it was like five years ago, was to start investing in the next generation mm-hmm. of new VCs. who got mm-hmm. so, so when I went to start my fund, I just wrote emails to all the rich people I had ever met, yeah. even if we weren't close, just like begging them for money to come into my fund. I was like, a lot of people who are starting out in this industry don't have those same relationships already. They don't have rich people to hit up for money. They, and they don't have people to vouch for them. Mm-hmm. They, didn't, you know, they didn't go to those fancy schools by virtue of the privilege they didn't have, right? They, like, they might have gotten into Stanford, but who's going to pay for it? Mm-hmm. And, so, and yet, I do believe they have unique perspectives on this industry, and they know how to be helpful to companies. So what I said was, I can be the first investor in some of these funds mm-hmm. and I can vouch mm-hmm. for them. I'll put my own money in, our mm-hmm. own money, mine and Crystal's money. And then I'll say to other investors, go in this one with me. This person's special. I know they're going to do well. Mm-hmm. And so instead of hiring junior employees, let's help create the next generation of diverse employees. So instead of just paying attention to how the big venture funds of the world don't have a lot of black and female decision mm-hmm. makers, F it. Let's go the route I did and make them not just working for somebody else, but giving them a shot at making the real money and making the real decisions and leading these firms. And it's amazing. I mean, I don't know the latest tally, but it's like 20 or or more now Mm -hmm. and they're incredible firms. And by the way, Mm -hmm. it's not charity. I'm going to make a lot of money doing this. Correct. Correct. It's not, it's just, it's just giving a chance to these people who are overlooked by the system and by bias, by the implicit bias we have that woman, Shivani, I was talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Shivani, is Shivani five feet tall? Maybe shorter? Yeah, she's like five feet tall, 90 pounds, Indian woman. I was at dinner with a speaker. I bring this up to reveal my bias, okay? Don't, okay. don't think I'm judging somebody by this. No, no. I was at dinner with a speaker night at the TED conference, and I wanted to sit at this one famous guy's table, and I got there, and his table was already full, and everyone's laughing. I had total FOMO. I'm like, shit, where do I sit? And I see this literally five foot tall small Indian woman sitting mm-hmm. alone with this name I didn't recognize. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a wasted night. And I roll up. I'm like, well, I should sit here. I'd yeah. be a jerk if I didn't. I'm like, hey, 
I'm Chris. What's your name? Shivs. Shivs, what do you do? Two hours later, I forgot to eat my meal. I didn't acknowledge anyone else that sat at the table. I was so engrossed by what she was doing, the world she was changing. At one point, I was like, who wrote all this code? And she's like, I did. I was like, but you're not a computer scientist. She's like, Chris, it's not that hard. I taught myself. Wow. I was just like, oh, my God, you're amazing. <laughs> like, who are you? And I, and I would have absolutely judged her by the package, by the presentation. Sure. She sure. doesn't look. Sure. And we've got this president who hires because they look the part. Polished and, yeah. Bullshit. Like, yeah. like literally, she's, she's making us a ton of money. And it's turning out to be one of the most effective, no drama, just execute, meet your goals, incredible leader, incredible culture, CEOs we've ever had. And physically, I would have just looked past her because of this bias I wasn't even aware I had my, you know, in, in me. I thought I was kind of woke, and I would have just looked right past her. And by those coincidences, I end up in this amazing investment that we're super excited about and wow. proud of. And so I think making sure that this industry is is represented by all these people you know you can uh, the way i always phrase it is you can do this either because you're a bleeding heart liberal who believes that you know we've got to make up for hundreds of years of discrimination that persists to today and women make 73 cents on the dollar and the system is rigged against these people right now and we all have this bias admit it or not or you just do it because you want to get rich because the data are clear that boards that are diverse, mm-hmm. boards of directors that are diverse, with people of color and women outperform boards that aren't. Mm-hmm. Companies headed up by women right now mm-hmm. and people of color are going into markets mm-hmm. that aren't saturated by investment because it turns out women and other underrepresented minorities have incredible spending power yeah. and have not been the target of innovation, right? I'm sure there's like a dozen Uber for yachts, right? Like, <laughs> So that Skip and Muffy can go True. find a yacht for a few hours. But, you know, there are these, there are these startups <laughs> being targeted more towards these communities that have been incredibly overlooked. And it turns out right. they're making money. Yeah. And so I try and say it as like either you do it because it's the right thing to do or you do it even if you're like Scrooge McDuck and you don't give a shit. Right. You do it because <laughs> you have no allergy to money. You like getting rich right. and that's why you invest. Um, and so that's been a big area of focus for us. Um, Criminal justice reform, making sure that we really are pushing um, not just things on prison condition, um, but the idea of resentencing. You know, we, we've seen this brain research that your brain hasn't really stopped forming until like 25. Mm-hmm. So people just do dumb shit when they're 16, 17, 18. We all do. It's just black kids who have mm-hmm. cops on their blocks end up getting arrested for it. And white kids don't. You know, white kids get driven home by the cops to their parents often, right? right? And so, so there's been incredible legislation passed in California, starting to show up other places, that make people who committed a crime when they were under 25 and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole eligible for resentencing to see if that really was a fair sentence. Now, how have they conducted themselves since being inside, you know, and that's incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's putting people um, back into the position to have some control over their own destiny mm-hmm. to lead a productive life. Um, and it's also having this downstream effect where guys in prison now are like, there's a shot for me. Maybe I should right. make this productive time. Right. Maybe I should learn, study, confront my, my own wrongdoings, prepare my victims yeah. and be ready. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that's some just incredible work, um, stuff that's happening around job training for people who are coming out of prison. That's often a problem, right? You Mm -hmm. come out of prison. Now you're a felon who wants to hire you. 
So this group we work with called the ARC, the Anti-Recidism Coalition, does this amazing work where they train wow. guys to be electricians. So when they come out of prison, they have union jobs, mm-hmm. not just jobs, but literally union jobs, right? High paying, stable, so they can come back in, be contributing members of society, Absolutely. provide for their family, have strong roots there, know that it's up to them to show up and work. And if they want to do that, then they have a stable place in society again. It's beautiful. In fact, the next program that ARC is doing right now is teaching guys in prison to code. So I love it. They can help so they can it. come out and be a web developer, Absolutely. be a sysops guy. And, and again, like they've got guys coming out making 80 grand because they've got skills now, right? And, and that has this effect throughout the prison of like, whoa, what just happened there? Maybe I should get involved with that. Um, because unfortunately, so many guys who get to prison who weren't bad people in the first place to stay, to right. survive in prison, end up falling into some bad stuff. Um, I've often said some of the smartest people in the world are people under bridges, and to your point. So um, I agree. The work you're doing is incredible, man. It's been an honor today oh, to have you, man. You. Seriously, thank inspirational you. to a young angel investor um, myself. So yeah. thank well, you so the much. The one thing I would say about angel investing, if we're not going to run out of tape, is always be honest with yourself in every deal. So we have some rules. First mm-hmm. of all, would we be proud to say we invested in this mm-hmm. thing, right? Mm-hmm. So. There's things we could make money on that we have not invested in, mm-hmm. um, like these vapes and shit, right? Like, like, I'm sure we could have made a ton of money investing in these vapes, mm-hmm. but you get kids in school using these things, nicotine addiction. Turns out, you know, the science shows they're not really that much better than cigarettes and stuff. So we could have gotten vape rich, but I don't have to tell my wife and daughters and parents, like, how do we get rich? Oh, shit, selling vapes. Uh, so no offense to the vape people, but sure, that's a decision sure. we make, okay? Number two is only work with people who we feel mm-hmm. make us feel better in our day. So basically mm-hmm. no a-holes that we work with. Um, three, we only hire people who have, um, who have had crappy jobs, who have worked, studied, traveled abroad extensively, or have been exposed to the human condition in some way. We think it makes them grateful for every day, mm-hmm. makes them realize and contextualize what we're doing. It also helps them bring another lens. You can't build a product for a couple billion people unless you know mm-hmm. what people outside of your little bubble work like. Um, we have a rule that give yourself a chance to get rich, so don't invest in something that's already so high-priced that everything has to be perfect for it to work out. Like Get involved in something early enough that you actually get a chance to get rich. And then the last and most important one is only invest in things where you know you can personally mm-hmm. be helpful enough to help change the probability of the outcome. Otherwise, just throw darts at a board in the public markets. But you got to find stuff where you dive in, you see that product, you mm-hmm. see that problem, and you know, I can change it. Mm-hmm. I can offer advice. Mm-hmm. I can bring other people in. I can help them tell that story. I can make the product better. Mm-hmm. I can steer the strategy here. I can help them sell this company or raise more money, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Like, don't get involved with anything unless mm-hmm. you're confident you can personally impact the outcome. Because that helps you get up in the morning and be like, all right. I can work on this. Otherwise, you feel helpless, anxious, stuff starts spinning out of control. You're like, I don't know what to do. Totally agree with you. And that's what I see when people make the crossover from athletics, from entertainment, from other industries. When I see them try and come over, that's the part they fail Mm -hmm. at. They're Mm -hmm. like, oh, this is cool. And I see a bunch of other people around the table. That's no way. Like, chasing it, the sheep don't make any money in this Mm -hmm. business. So, anyway, my 30 seconds on (laughs) how to be a good angel. Thank you for having me today. Absolute privilege. It's hard to believe that this interview was a couple of years ago because there's so much here that's applicable right now. If you want to have success in anything, you need to be ready for the right opportunities. 
know how to have balance in your life, and discover how you can create impact and influence. This is just the beginning, folks. There are so many great guests lined up for this season, so get ready. Until next time, I'm Michael Red. Remember, you are the secret to your success.